Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Hélène Franchineau, a freelance videographer and all-around journalist in Istanbul, Turkey. I only realized just now, writing the intro for this, that if you squint your eyes and tilt your head, her last name kind of almost contains the words France and China, which, as you'll see, is very appropriate despite her being in Turkey now. Many of our guests have freelanced at one time or another, but Hélène is a true blue freelancer. We knew each other back when she was a videographer at the Associated Press in Beijing, before she struck out on her own. If there's a theme of this episode, it's people reuniting after a long time being away, and how that has worked its way into Hélène's work, and what theme could be more appropriate for a show dominated by foreign correspondents. I have three notes going into today's show. First, we discuss the Uyghur in this podcast. I explain a bit in the middle of the podcast, but I realize it may be hard coming in cold to figure out what word it is we're saying. It's Uyghur, often spelled either U-I-G-H-U-R or U-Y-G-H-U-R. They are a Muslim ethnic group that lives in far western China, in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. You may have heard about them in the news, but if not, that's all you need to know to understand our conversation. Secondly, we're now on YouTube. I've been watching a fair bit of the Netflix show Patriot Act since we had Meredith Clark on the podcast. The one about hip-hop and streaming convinced me maybe I don't listen to much music or podcasts on YouTube. Maybe you don't. Maybe no one I know does. But apparently there are a lot, a lot of people who do. Look us up by searching Foreign Correspondence, and you'll find the latest three episodes with 18 whole views. Only like four of those are me, so someone must be listening. If you do check it out, please hit subscribe. I may need a certain number of followers to get a fancy customized URL, although in reality I have no idea how that works. And thirdly, a big shout out to Kwasi, our listener in Ghana, who is a young freelancer fresh out of J school, but already off to a great start writing for The Guardian, Quartz, CNN, Al Jazeera, and others. Thanks for sending me an email. I really can't stress enough how much I love to get feedback. Okay, that's it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Hélène Franchineau, a freelance journalist in Turkey. Is everything uh, good in, in Brazil? Must be very interesting at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's been very interesting. I kind of am supposed to be doing commodities and environment stuff, and I vastly prefer doing the environment stuff. So I guess the good thing about things getting yeah. so bad here is I can kind of focus on environment more and more. Yeah, and and how many years did you spend in China before you moved to Brazil? Uh, it would have been six in all. So I left in July 2017. When did you leave? I left in the end of September 2017. I'm talking to Elaine Franchino. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Is that how how do I say it? It would be Elaine Franchino, but it's fine. <laughs> okay, well, I'm talking to Elaine Franchino, uh, your freelance videographer in Turkey, and uh, thanks for so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've listened to a few of these, or no? It's fine either I've way. I've listened to every single episode. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's great. That's that's awesome. That's good to hear. Uh, so usually to start, we just start with a little bit of description of where you are, what time it is, a little bit about what your surroundings are there, and what kind of week you've had. 
So it's 5 p.m. on a Sunday. I'm sitting in my friend's apartment, actually. I'm in a neighborhood of Istanbul called Kadikoy. It's on the Asian side. I'm looking at the window. I'm seeing the view with rooftops and the mosque and the television tower. And the sky is very, very blue. It's a very nice day. And uh, the week I had, well, I'm preparing a trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the week has been preparing for the trip. I went to Ankara to get my visa. It was delayed. And I'm finally leaving tomorrow night. And can you talk at all about what you're going there for or who you're working for there? Of course. So for the next year, I'll be working with an NGO actually called World Vision. So I'll be there a roving multimedia correspondent. NGOs usually, you know, when they work with children, they kind of target, I don't know, all the people who want to sponsor children, etc. But this time they want to do something radically different. They want to target the millennial audience. So they hired me as a journalist, as a multimedia journalist, and they will send me to different countries to try and produce visual content, uh, social media videos, something that can appeal to us pretty much so that we can donate uh, more. They are doing something very different from what they used to do and they hired me to work with them as a journalist i'm keeping my journalistic eye and i'll be taking pictures and videos and so they have three countries that they will be sending me to mostly it will be afghanistan democratic republic of congo and honduras along with other countries such as uh, lebanon iraq etc so i will go pretty much once or twice a month and report from there oh wow but but you'll go back to turkey and then go yes yes okay in between i'll go back to istanbul yeah okay so So not a full year on the road (laughs) that's good (laughs) no 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 it's uh, i still get to to rest but it will be a lot of traveling to what they call fragile contexts yes okay and does it focus on any particular thing is it development in general or health or uh, what's their focus Um, So my first trip, which I finished last month, was Honduras, and they wanted me to try and convey to a millennial audience who might not know anything about Honduras, what is actually happening in Honduras. Why is Honduras one of the most dangerous places to be in the world? Why is San Pedro Sula the most dangerous city in the world? What is happening? What are the key problems in Honduras? So, for example, gangs, the violence. How is it to grow up in a neighborhood that is controlled by a gang? How do you go to school or I don't know, how do you escape being part of a gang. And also another key issue for Honduras was climate change. Honduras will be one of the countries that will be most affected by climate change. And so coffee plantations are dying. People don't have money. They lose all their crops, so they don't have money. And so these two themes, violence, but also climate change, this is sending a lot of people on the migrant trail, for example, to the US. So I had to talk about all of this while meeting former gang members or coffee plantation owners or coffee workers or people who live in the middle of nowhere next to the border with Guatemala, for example, and there is no rain, they have nowhere to work or nothing to do. So they just leave. Wow. It sounds like a very interesting project to get to be sent it to is, all those places. It, yeah. it is very fascinating. And I'm, I'm very happy because all the, the three key countries I will go to next year, they are vastly different. So DRC at the moment, it's been a lot in the headlines for Ebola, which right. has uh, resurfaced, especially in North Kivu. 2,000 people died. A vaccine has been found and they are trying to test the second one. So there are a lot of hopes about that. But also you still have the issue 
issues of child soldiers, a lot of corruption. The problematics are very different. And then Afghanistan, which I will go to in November. Well, Afghanistan, you know, you have supposedly elections next week. You have bombings happening every day. You have, I don't know, there are a lot of uh, questions about, okay, if the Taliban come back to power, what is going to happen, etc. So it's very, very different and it's very exciting. Yeah, well, very cool. So I guess now we'll, we'll go back to the beginning and we'll, we'll talk, I'm yes. sure, a bit more about World Vision in this project more towards the end. To go back to how you got to where you are now, where were you born? And if you could tell us a little bit about what growing up was like, what your family was like, your background. Okay, so I'm from France. I come from the central west of France. Uh, my hometown is called Loudun. Nobody has heard of it, but I still want to see it <laughs> on the <laughs> podcast. It has 7,000 people. So it's a very, very small town. And so I don't know if you place uh, Paris and then Bordeaux, which is in the southwest of France, I'm in the middle. So it takes four hours by car to go to Paris, four hours by car to go to Bordeaux. I'm in the Loire Valley. I mean, I had a very peaceful childhood. I mean, I went to my primary school in my hometown and my parents work as a real estate agents. They have a small agency there. I have mm-hmm. an older sister, younger brother. I mean, it was uh, so uneventful that I wanted to leave, obviously. So when I came to going to high school, I just told my parents that I wanted to learn Chinese, actually. So it was a big surprise for them, but I wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to go to a bigger town and learning uh, an additional language, something that was not uh, offered by the high school in your hometown was the key for me to escape, I would say. So I studied Chinese when I was in high school. You actually went to a different town to to live for high school? Exactly. Yeah. So I did some research and I went to the, I would say, capital city of my region. Uh, It's called Poitiers. It was about 100 kilometers from my hometown. And in one of the high schools, they had Chinese, Portuguese, ancient Greek. It was a big high school. And so they also, they had high level sports. So you had some athletes coming and obviously staying at the boarding school. And so I I enrolled. I studied Chinese in high school. Obviously, I went to boarding schools. I would go early on Monday morning and I would come back to my hometown Friday night or Saturday morning. Okay. So at least it wasn't, you weren't living there. Permanently, no. Yeah, no, it was uh, too far to go every day, but not far enough so that I wouldn't be able to come back every weekend. It was okay. And how, how did your family feel about that? Were they fine to send you off or no? Yeah, they were very uh, accommodating. I mean, obviously they understood that potentially, you know, learning Chinese could be great. It was still relatively close. It was not a private school, which might have been more expensive. It was a public school. It was normal high school. So yeah, they were super okay with it. A bit surprised, but very okay with it. And uh, so when did you start to take an interest in journalism? Very late, actually. My interest in China led me to journalism, but journalism, I only realized I wanted to be a journalist when I was in my mid-20s or 23, 24. From the moment I started Chinese, it was all about China. I was completely in love with the country. I wanted to work there, no matter what job I would do, but it was China, 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 and then... My time in China led me to different experiences. And then little by little, I discovered that, yeah, actually journalism is something I'm very interested in. And I could do that as a job. But that came much, much later. So my first time, I studied Chinese in high school. I was 15. First time in China, actually, it was the year later. My parents had some clients who were working for the 
EDF, which is I don't the, the, the French National Electricity Company. Anyway, they were building a power plant in southern China, so they were working there. And so my parents asked if they could host me for a month in southern China. And they said yes. So my parents sent me one month when I was 16 to China. And it was an eye-opening experience, which increased my my love for the country, pretty much. They sent you to live for one month at the site of a a power plant being built? Uh, In the city. So the power plant was being built in Guangxi province. And the city was Laibin, Laibin. I think it's a small Chinese town of 100,000 people. Oh, wow. So they sent me there for a month, and it was in 2000. And as you know, China in 2000 was very different from what we know now. Yeah. So it was my first experience of China. I also went to Nanning. I stayed with a university professor living on the campus, and then I went to Beijing. But I did everything pretty much alone, which was I don't know, such a slap in the in the face. You know, you go to China, you're only 16, you hardly can speak Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> when I went there, I guess I must have been 19 or 20. It's a slap in the face, but it's great. It was amazing. Yes. Like it made me want to do it Definitely. all the more. Exactly, because me coming from a small hometown and you go to this place where you're never alone because it's so crowded and you discovered a new culture. The food was amazing. And I thought, okay, I don't know what I want to do, but I want to live in China. I want to work in China. I want to experience what's happening here. Yeah, it's good that worked out like that because it sounds like me. I mean, but later, you know, it was an arbitrary decision to study Chinese. And, you know, I just ended up really liking it. You went for a month and you go back for a couple more years of high school and then you graduate and then what happens? So in France, we have universities and then we have other prestigious schools, I would say, what we call les grandes écoles. And one of them is called Sciences Po. You have nine Sciences Po, meaning Institute of Political Science. You have nine of them in France, the most prestigious being the one in Paris, where most of our uh, politicians have studied. So I I got into the one in Bordeaux directly after high school and I studied there for four years, one of them being spent in Cardiff, Wales, on my Erasmus gap year. Erasmus is a program set up by the European Union to allow students in the EU to take one of their year at university to spend it in another university in the EU. You can choose, uh, yeah, if you want, like my friends, they've studied in Sweden or Czech Republic, Italy. I chose the UK. I wanted to improve my English. Yeah. What were you studying again? You were studying Chinese? So no? I was, no, well, my master's was international relations. And at this university in Bordeaux, there was no Chinese. So I had to take a separate degree in Chinese. So I ended up doing two degrees at the same time. One, a master's in international relations and a bachelor in Chinese at another university in Bordeaux. Oh, wow. That sounds like a lot all at once. It, it was intense. Yes. And so one of the, yeah, so my second year, I spent it in Cardiff studying European studies, oddly enough, and uh, British uh, literature, because you have to. <laughs> <laughs> huh. And w- w- so would you say you were a pretty serious student or, I mean, what w- was what was driving you more like you wanted to go out and adventure uh, I, or what was driving you? So my drive was, so I wanted to keep my Chinese on the side of obviously. And I was trying to find opportunities to go back to China. So I would spend a summer studying at Fudan University.
university in Shanghai to improve my Chinese, or I would spend another summer doing an internship at the French consulate in Guangzhou. Anything that would still keep me afoot in China while I was finishing my studies, my university. And so when I graduated in 2006, I did an internship at a British company who was doing business intelligence. So that was my drive. I wanted to go back to China as soon as possible, actually. Yeah. Okay. I worked with them for six months. So I was in Shanghai in 2006. I finished my internship. Obviously, I didn't want to go back to France. I was a 22-year-old with uh, two degrees, and I didn't really know what to do, except that I wanted to stay <laughs> in China. So sure. uh, after, my, yeah, after my internship, I just did several other jobs, just enjoy my time in China. And I started actually doing some freelance writing, you know, for magazines such as Time Out or That's Shanghai, That's Beijing, etc. And also was writing for Shanghaiists. I don't know if you remember this website. Yeah, I vaguely remember the guy who ran it. Uh, is it Kenneth Tan? Is it Kenneth? Guy? Kenneth yeah. Tan, yeah. Kenneth was, uh, was writing, but this website was run by Dan Washburn, who later went to Asia Society in New York, I think. Anyway, it was a more, I would say, sorry, Kenneth, a more serious China news website. You had news, you had movie reviews, you had debates were going on and on and on in the comment sections. And it was a different website. So I was uh, writing for it. I just wrote Dan Washburn saying, hey, I, I like your website. You could use maybe a female, non-native English-speaking voice. And maybe I have a different perspective to add. And then he said, okay. And then I started writing for them. It was my first experience writing and doing some sort of, not journalism, but something covering China. Like Time Out and that Shanghai, and those are for people who don't know culture magazines mostly magazines was, you pick up to see what's going on on the weekend, exa- things like exactly. that. Exactly, I was doing restaurant reviews and events, things like that. You know, I got a few photos published or a couple of bylines, and then you know, little by little, you have to start somewhere. So I was writing for Shanghaiist, and then a friend of mine just randomly said, "Hey, I do climbing with the correspondent." of Le Monde, which is the biggest French newspaper. I, I climb with him. I know him. If you want, I can give you his phone number. And I said, sure. At the moment, I was uh, actually a tour guide. <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> traveling with uh, the groups of French tourists all over China. And uh, during one of those days, I think the group was watching Chinese opera somewhere. And then I took out that phone number and I called this correspondent. His name is Brice Pedroletti. And I just pitched myself to him. And we met several days later. It was in 2007. And he agreed to have me work with him as his assistant. And I will always thank him for that because it was a great experience. We traveled, we covered several stories. I had my pictures published in Le Monde. And 10 years later, we met in Beijing. You know, he was now the Le Monde correspondent in Beijing. And I was uh, with the AP. So it was it was nice. So were you in China the entire time from 2007 to 2017? No. So so with the Brice, with the Le Monde correspondent, I realized that I wanted to do journalism. I finally, I saw the light. I found my way. <laughs> <laughs> but I also realized that my English was not really good enough to write for an English audience. I didn't really know how to write. I didn't really have the skills. You know, I liked photography, but my pictures, were they good enough? I didn't have a network of people. I didn't know anyone. So I was like, okay, I could stay in China and be a struggling freelance 
journalist or I could leave and actually hone my skills, maybe get a degree and then come back. And I chose to leave, to go back to France. I got into journalism school and I came back to China a few years later, but that, that's many years later. So came back to France and I got into a good journalism school actually uh, in Paris. And I What's it studied, called? It's actually it's the same network of schools that I studied in, in Bordeaux. So it's Sciences Po and they have a an excellent journalism school in Paris. So I did my master's there from 2008 to 2010. And they had a double degree with Columbia University in New York. I applied and I got in and I did a, a master's as well in, in New York at Columbia. And I finished in 2011. Wow. And during my year... Yeah. You're yeah, definitely I mean, the best educated <laughs> guest we've had. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like collecting uh, masters. No, but for me, my goal was actually to get into Colombia because I wanted to write or film or photograph actually for the English speaking media. Might sound strange, but for me, the audience is bigger in terms of visual content. It's more interesting. It's more, I would say, advanced. When I look at the Le Monde website and I see they have almost zero video coverage, you know, it's pretty sad. So I wanted to stay with, I would say, Anglo-Saxon media because I knew that things would be more interesting. I, I would get to do much more. So getting to Colombia, getting the seal of approval that, okay, I have a degree from a, an American university, you know, I can write, I can work for anyone. And also when I was in Shanghai, I was an avid reader of the New York Times China coverage, especially Howard French, who was the correspondent in Shanghai, and he was teaching at Columbia. And uh, in my application, I, I wrote, I would like to attend Howard French covering China. I would like to attend this class. And when I was a student there, I was in this class and it was a great class. It taught me so much. Yeah, I remember I read Howard French a lot back in university and yeah. he was kind of the guy. Exactly. That was a long time ago. I guess he's been a professor for a while at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was a student there in 2010. I think he joined in 2009. I was in China around 2006, 2007, 2008. I highly regard him and we're still in touch and his class was uh, excellent. When did video stuff start to happen for you and visual stuff? Or was I, it always there well, alongside? At first, I've always been interested in photography. Never really considered it on a professional level while I was in France. And actually, when I was at the journalism school in Paris, I was not really interested in the television classes that they were offering. I mean, of course, I knew how to film, but the video classes I was getting in France and at the journalism school in Paris, it was more getting vox pop, doing reactions. You know, you would be on camera. It was more this kind of television coverage. And for me, I was not interested in that at all. I was more looking into what was happening in American media. Like the New York Times for me is the best, I would say, multimedia work that you can find. So I was always looking at what they were doing. And for me, what I was taught at Columbia, when we were starting filming with DSLR, etc., it clicked. For me, I became much more passionate about it. I became very interested because it's more creative. It's more interesting. You know, you're not on camera with your microphone. You're behind the camera. You let the people talk and you can do much more creative stuff. So that started then. I chose the 
digital track or specialty during that master's. And I was pretty much living in the editing room. <laughs> so uh, did you do like one big project or uh, like a big feature video? Oddly enough, no. So we had to do a master's project, but I had asked around the past students, what did you do as your master's project? And all those who had done video multimedia, it was so much work. So I actually <laughs> did a written master's project, something that would not require too much work. But actually, I was very proud of it. And then I could focus myself on honing my portfolio and finding a job after. But I did several videos of which I'm very happy about. Like, for example, that I randomly met a homeless man who was actually from South Africa who had escaped apartheid. And he was living out of, and I think it was Penn Station that we met. And he was a former jazz musician and profiled him. And actually, maybe one month after my profile came out, I think it was on Vimeo, I got an email from an old friend of his who was looking for him. And they reunited and he could help this homeless man. They started hanging out together. He gave him some money, you know, some like uh, maybe an apartment. Or I don't know how it ended, but it was two old friends who were reunited thanks to my video. So I was feeling <laughs> very good about the goal of journalism. Yeah, that's great. So were you still focused on then once you got out applying for jobs just in China? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Actually, I only applied to one place, which was the South China Morning Post. Okay. They had, yeah, I didn't even apply for a job in the US or back in Europe. I wanted to go back to China. And I knew that the South China Morning Post had a, an internship program and they had taken a few former Columbia students. So I got in and I did a three months internship, which turned out as a job. They offered me a job. So it was great. I was very happy. And they hired me as a multimedia reporter. But ironically speaking, their new website was not ready. So I did one year <laughs> I did one year on the print desk, on the local desk, which was great. It was an amazing experience because I honed my writing skills and I could all actually do my own videos on the site along with my uh, articles. And they gave me total creative freedom. And so yeah, thank you. It was a, a great time. Was that I in joined. Hong Kong or where was that? Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In Hong Kong. Well, I left New York in May 2011. I spent probably two days at home and then I left to Hong Kong and I arrived in Hong Kong and I arrived with my suitcases in the newsroom and I started the internship immediately. Wow. Okay. And then you got the job there. I mean, how, how did you feel about the whole Hong Kong versus mainland thing? I mean, were you wanting to get back to the mainland? Did you have strong feelings about yeah, that? I was hoping that they would send me more. Covering Hong Kong was very interesting, but in the end, it's a small place compared to the rest of China, obviously. So my feet were itchy, I would say. Still, you know, many things were happening in Hong Kong at the time, especially, for example, the demonstrations against the national education program. I think that was what it was called. The government wanted to add a compulsory class or education to pretty much love the mainland something that would instill into <laughs> students a sense of patriotism. And so that's when the demonstrations started. That's when Joshua Wong actually emerged on the scene. He was, I think, 16 at the time. So it was very fun to cover that. We covered video, photo, text. South China Morning Post was stepping back into the multimedia world. So it was very interesting to be part of that. But in the end, I realized that I wouldn't be covering China. I would be covering Hong Kong, unless they would send me to Beijing. But, you know, there was no but I did do 
a couple of interesting videos. One I'm very happy about, very proud of, and I'll tell you more in the end of with your rounds of questions. Sure. But, so after that, what do, what do you do next? You can't get transferred by SCMP, no, so you get uh, yeah. a job somewhere else? I left uh, the SCMP after two years. I decided to start freelance in Hong Kong. And uh, so I left, I think it was May 2013, and I met with the Asia editor of the BBC for coffee and then I got very lucky because a few days later Hong Kong became the center of uh, attention of the entire world because Edward Snowden emerged in Hong Kong he was hiding in Hong Kong so Snowden who I don't know if you remember revealed the vast network of surveillance by the US government along with Glenn Greenwald actually and Laura Poitras so he was hiding in Hong Kong, in a hotel in Hong Kong for several days. And then when his location burst out on the international scene, everybody was looking for him in Hong Kong. And I just emailed the BBC Asia editor whom I met a few days ago. And I told him, I'm free if you ever need someone with your BBC correspondent. And he emailed back saying that they needed someone. And so I started being the camera person for the BBC Hong Kong Bureau. I did that for a few months and a vacancy came up with the associated press in Beijing. They wanted a video journalist. I applied and to my great surprise, I got the job. So I moved to Beijing at the beginning of 2014. Okay. So let me just think on my own timing. I guess I moved to Beijing in 2013. Yeah. Sorry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it takes me some time to remember at uh, some uh, point. No, yeah. But this, so <laughs> this is... Old. Yeah, yeah. This is where we cross paths, not not exactly. right away. And I was trying to think back to how exactly we met. The one time I remember was I remember running into you at Diao Yutai and you were lugging all mm -hmm. your equipment. But at that point, we already knew each other. And yeah. I don't know, do you remember, did we meet through Becky or did we meet through someone else? I can't remember. I think we probably met on the field and on the field, the, the faces become quite familiar after a while. That's and, true. you know, we were, we were competition. <laughs> no, even though you, you had your beat, you were writing and I was filming, but you quickly identify who the competition is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, video people always stand out because you're always lugging a ton of shit. Um, I always feel bad yep, for... Exactly. for uh, <laughs> video people especially in china because all these complexes are gigantic and so you've got to yeah. like you know diao yutai is huge and you've got to lug your stuff from the gate all the way to whatever oh, stupidly yes. large hall um, exactly great hall of the people yeah, yeah exactly and you have to rush from okay the the opening ceremony is over the handshake is over you have to rush with your camera and your tripod to the next place where they will sign an agreement of something yeah i remember those days fondly <laughs> <laughs> so was it everything you had hoped for? I mean, I guess now you're at AP, it's a full-time job. I mean, did you think, oh, I've made it now? To be honest with you, when I got the job, I just couldn't believe it. I was over the moon. It was everything I had hoped for. I was back to China. I was doing video. I was working for the AP. It was great. And it was great. I mean, China did deliver in terms of great stories, big stories and breaking news. I mean, a few days after I moved to Beijing, uh, MH370 disappeared from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. 
changing and it was a month of madness. Yeah, it, it was great. It, it was seeing China and covering China for me. It was a different China. I was filming in the Great Hall of the People. I was doing breaking news. It was the 25th anniversary of Tiananmen and the democracy demonstrations that we had to prepare well beforehand because it was such a sensitive topic that we had to make sure that everything was ready because if it was a few days before, the authorities were so scared that everything was on lockdown and it was very difficult to work. So we started preparing for stories like that two months beforehand and we were interviewing people who played a role in this and who were in house arrest and we had to find students who would be willing to talk. Like It was fascinating. I didn't count the hours I worked, but it was so rewarding. I was very happy. At that point, I was writing about the car industry, so I was a bit like not quite as in the thick of it, but certainly I'd get sent to like cover the Congress and things like that. I got yes. now and again, but I was far from the whole dissidents or Tiananmen type stuff, for sure. Don't get me wrong, we did get our share of handshakes, and I don't know if you remember, what was it, APEC or something like that? In oh, yeah. Was, oh, yeah. I you have. It's stuff that you have to cover. It's the least visual thing in the world, but still you have to be in that gigantic press center. It's also the other side of covering China. Yeah, and I know a fair few people that that eventually drives them completely nuts. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so you said in 2014 and you left in 2017, so you do a fair good three years. Three and a half, um, yeah. I guess that's where I, I don't know what happens uh, with you next, how you get from China to Turkey. So it was a process in my mind. <laughs> I mean, it was like being in Hong Kong and then you, you yearn for China. I was, I was in China. I was actually more and more yearning for the Middle East, for example. They sent me to Burma to cover the elections and I was waking up in Bangkok on my way to Burma where on November 13th, 2015, where the, the, all the attacks happened in Paris and I was suddenly finding myself yearning to actually cover those stories because for me they were more and more important. I, I wanted to tell a different story, I guess, and seeing the waves of refugees across Europe, I was yearning to cover this story. I was yearning to cover the bombings in Paris. They sent me to cover the bombings in Brussels in March 2016. I, I don't know. It was a shift. I wanted to cover something else. I don't know. I was raising my hand to cover things like that. AP actually was very gracious because they have an annual award. And in 2016, I got one of these awards. And so it was, I could use that award to actually go to Jordan for two months to study Arabic because I wanted to prepare myself to maybe move to the Middle East. Uh -huh. But AP or Reuters or any other big media organization, it's a big machine. Things take time. And actually, despite my repeated request, I felt that, you know, it would take such a long time, and which is fine. I completely understand. But when I came back from Jordan, back to Beijing, they asked me to stay longer in Beijing. So I thought maybe I should just move myself. And also on the creative side of things, I'm always yearning to learn more skills to do different things. After three and a half years of agency videos, I wanted to step up. I wanted to step up my game. I think naturally speaking, I'm quite entrepreneurial. I had quit my job before to be freelance. I had no problem doing it again. So I left my job at the AP end of September 2017. And the next day I moved to Turkey with oh, my wow. suitcases. <laughs> had you been to Turkey before at least? 
Uh, I had been to Turkey twice, but just a couple of days. So yeah, not really. I mean, and, and why, why, <laughs> Turkey, why Turkey? Did you think like Turkey? I mean, was there something particularly going on there that you were interested in, or was it just because it's a good place to base yourself to get around the region? It's, it's both. I carefully thought about it. I thought about moving to Amman, but Jordan is quiet and some convenient to travel. I thought about moving to Beirut. Same. It's not very convenient. Turkey is one, a country that has so much going on, domestically speaking. It's incredible. It's like China. It's the story that keeps on happening. And also Istanbul is the ideal base. You can go anywhere. The airport is very convenient. You can travel anywhere. You're close to everywhere. And as a journalist, I mean, a lot of things have been happening in Turkey. I mean, especially in the past five years, I would say. But Turkey is changing a lot and a lot of things are happening. So it made sense. Yeah, yeah, the whole Erdogan rise of authoritarianism thing. True, and the Syrian refugees, and they had a lot of attacks themselves. There was a failed coup attempt, and you know, the whole story of Erdogan now more than 15 years in power, how it's evolving and how it's changed the country, and it's very interesting to witness. And also, you know, it's a great gateway to the Middle East and further, and I don't regret at all. So before we get into some specific stories, what kind of publications were you freelancing for since you moved there in 2017? So since I moved, I've had the chance to work with Arte, which is a French-German TV channel covering both actually Jordan and Turkey. Well, Turkey had presidential elections last June, so I worked with the New York Times on a short documentary. Cool. Uh, Sartre Morning Post, of course, uh, covering the Uyghur story, the very important story that is the Uyghur in Turkey, and NGOs, I don't know. The beauty of freelancing is that every day is different. Every project is different. It's great. So I've had many different clients. So I'm sure, yeah, it's a lot of hustling, but it sounds like there was no shortage of work once you got up and running. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I usually ask if you ever thought there was any point you weren't going to, quote unquote, make it as a journalist. Freelancing, as you said, it's a lot of hustling. It can be hard sometimes. I'm not going to lie. You constantly have to think about stories, be proactive, pitch, don't take no for an answer. It's more rewarding, but it's definitely harder. But, you know, sometimes you get to do the stories that you're very interested in. So I don't know. I don't see myself doing something else for now. Sure. And now you at least you've got a a kind of a year long project to look forward to. I imagine that brings some stability in the middle of all the hustling. Um, Yes, 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 yes. No, no. And it's, it's very, it's the best of both worlds because I get to still be a journalist, even if it's for an NGO. And it's great. Right. Yeah. If they're willing to finance a project, why not? You know. So then uh, about the stories, I usually start with the story that got away. If there's a story that, say, you wanted to do, but you never got around to, either never got past the idea stage, you couldn't prove it, or you couldn't get the person you needed to talk to you, or I don't know, a reporting trip that went awry. Does anything come to mind? So uh, in 20 16, I had a reporting fellowship. It's called the IWMF. It's the International Women's in the Media Foundation. I think it's an NGO that helps women journalists. So you apply, you get a fellowship, and they sent you, at that time, 
they, they had a East Africa Great Lakes reporting initiative. So they would organize several reporting trips for women journalists several times a year to different countries in East Africa. And it had a topic. So I had applied and I had won this fellowship in Uganda. And the theme was environmental protection. And I had pitched a story about pangolins, which uh-huh. are... <laughs> Which are very adorable mammals, kind of a, how do you say in English, armadillo? Yeah, yeah, armadillos Um, with scales, yeah. Exactly, with scales. And so those scales are hot commodity in Southeast Asia and China, especially because they want to use them as powder to cure whatever disease or to improve their sexual prowess, for example. So pangolins were trafficked from East Africa all the way to Southeast Asia, entering through Burma, I think, or probably sometimes Singapore, and ending up in southern China and the scales being sold or the animals being sold. So I wanted to do a story on how pangolins were trafficked from East Africa all the way to Southeast Asia and China. So that was the first part of my story, which I did in Uganda. I talked to several detectives in Kampala who were trying to catch the smugglers. They were talking to me men, they were talking even to Chinese people who were coming all the way to Uganda to try and smuggle the pangolins. And I was hoping that back in China, I would continue the story and prove that illegal products such as pangolin scales were freely available on WeChat. And I had started doing my reporting work. I had found several sellers on WeChat. But, WeChat and I, it's so a, like uh, WeChat's the WhatsApp type slash, program. That's uh, a, lot, a lot more than that. You, I mean, people buy and sell and there's exactly exactly it's uh, the go-to app in uh, china and so on the wechat marketplace i found several people who were ready to sell me dead pangolins but you know the full body or pangolin scales etc and then i it's my big regret it's just that i didn't continue the reporting i got caught up with other stories you know how it is with the news agency and i i never finished that story yeah yeah no i know how that is but (laughs) you did Produce a story about the Africa side. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. Uh, produced, I produced a video and photos and an article because so there is the IUCN red list. So IUCN, it's International Union for Conservation of Nature. So mm-hmm. uh, every year they come up with a list with the species that are threatened or not threatened, red, orange, yellow, etc. And so at that time, 2016, they were going to bump pangolin from orange, uh, meaning some trade is allowed, to red, to any kind of trade involving pangolins was completely forbidden. And so they were meeting in South Africa. It was an annual meeting of the parties, many different countries attending. And so the day they decided that pangolins was going to be a banned species, I had finished my reporting and I had finished editing the video. And so we published the whole report the day that that decision was made. So it was great timing. Yeah, wow, that's very, very good timing. And yeah, I I do remember pangolins had kind of a cultural moment a few years ago. I I assume it was around then. Boy, they kind of captured people's imaginations because they made it for life and, you know, they were in danger. And I remember there was a Google doodle about pangolins. And and there was a moment when it suddenly everybody became aware that pangolins existed. Of course, course, the Chinese consumptions, I would say, is driving many species to extinction, including the pangolins. 
pangolins. So it was an important story to do, even though nobody's heard of pangolins and this animal is actually very hard to see and is absolutely defenseless. And so during that reporting trip, the people were calling me Miss Pangolin. <laughs> cool. Yeah. At least if, even if the Chinese side got away, you yeah. stuck your flag on the pangolin story. So then let's get into a story or two that you're proud of. Um, if there's a specific story you're thinking of, if you can start us with how you got the idea and walk us through how you reported it all the way to publication and reaction to it. So it was a video I shot for the South China Morning Post, actually, in 2013, when actually I was uh, at Columbia. I had watched a Chinese documentary called Last Train Home. I don't know if you have heard of it. It's a, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, the director follows two factory workers as they make their way home once a year for Chinese New Year and as they reunite with their children that they have left behind to the care of the grandparents. And so the director is like a fly in the wall. He has great access to this family and he gets to film all the emotions and all the drama that involves leaving your children, leaving them for a year and not being with them and missing key moments and the drama and all the hardship of working in a factory. It was a documentary that I absolutely loved and I wanted to do something like it. So it was 2013 and it has changed since, of course, but the Chinese New Year coverage was a lot of, for example, following the migrant workers. Okay, you get to follow them. Back then, you didn't really see how is it back home? You know, how do they reunite with their family? Is it happy? Is it sad? Do the children have a lot of resentment towards the parents? Or how does it really happen behind the doors? So I wanted to do that. And thanks to the help of my SCMP colleague who was based in Guangzhou, we spoke together and she helped me find a couple of migrant workers who were working in Shenzhen in a factory. They were from Henan province, also central China, and they accepted to have me accompany them, go back home, spend Chinese New Year with them, film everything, see how is it to reunite with their son that they have left behind and do the whole trip with them and have a camera in their face for 10 days. <laughs> so, <laughs> so maybe a few weeks before the Chinese New Year, we were talking on WhatsApp and then a few days before the trip. We got very lucky because it was incredibly hard to find, obviously, train tickets to go back home. But we got very lucky because we found tickets for the same train, all three of us. So obviously I could do the trip with them. And a few days before the trip started, I went to Shenzhen. So I took the train, I crossed the border, I took a taxi for probably two hours because it was so far. And then I met them face to face. And they told me later on, we had only spoken on the phone. They didn't know what I looked like. And mm -hmm. they thought I was from Hong Kong because when I was speaking Chinese, oh. I had an accent. So they thought I was from Hong Kong. But then I showed up and they realized that I was a Westerner, blonde hair and blue eyes and everything. So obviously uh -huh. I would stand I would stand out more back home. So it was very funny. So <laughs> so the day of the trip, I arrived in Shenzhen the night before. I stayed at the hotel by the train station. And then we met very early in the morning at the train station. And then that's when I started filming. It was crowded. Like, you have no idea. Obviously, it's a 
a lot of anticipation, a lot of stress. You cannot miss the train. So we rode for pretty much a day on the train. Did you have seats at least? Because, I mean, they'll sell you any well, number of things from standing to a bed. <laughs> so we had, we had seats. We had hard seats. Right, but, okay. you know, the train was so crowded that you stand up and you switch seat with somebody else like you never stay in one place you know especially I was filming but you move you know you talk to other people like the atmosphere everybody was so happy to go back home there were lots of things to eat and then people sleep and then people sleep on top of one another it was very chaotic but great everybody's looking forward to reuniting with our family and so we arrived the next day how many Kanan, hours are we I, talking like we're talking uh, like a the, more the, than 24 the, hour trip or no the, the, the trip was probably 21 or 22 hours. Um, wow. And then we took a bus for probably four or five hours. I remember there was a Jackie Chan movie playing inside the bus. <laughs> and then we arrived in that small town. And then that was the key moment to get the reunion with the family. So we took a small taxi to their home. And then the grandparents came out. And the, the son came out as well. And in China, they don't really do public displays of affection. So <laughs> they are not met in a year, but it was still pretty cold. It was not warm embrace like you would expect. I was not surprised, but it was very interesting to film. But the close connections happened later on. Like they were obviously very happy to reunite. And, you know, the, the night before Chinese New Year, everybody would gather. It was so cold. Obviously, it was in February. So everybody would gather in one room, huddled all together, and they would watch the CCTV Chinese New Year Gala all together. I mean, I had incredible access, but it was also very interesting to film how they would to reconnect with their son, who was not doing well at school. So they were very worried about that. They How were old was he? About his... He was 11. 10, 11. So, and the, you know, gran the was... grandparents were taking care of him, I take it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So okay. doing what they could, he was not doing very well at school. He was a bit uh, mischievous, so the parents were worried about he should get better grades. So they would sit down with him and give him a talk, like you have to study well at school. You know, like they do what they can to reconnect with their son, but sometimes it, it was difficult. But I had access that I couldn't dream of. Like they let me film everything. Um, Did they forget Abby. you were there, kind of, at a certain point? Or yes, after, after a certain point, yes, yes, yes. The first couple of days, people were coming to visit them, but the rumor that a foreigner was in the village had spread, so people were also coming to see what I looked like. <laughs> so it was very interesting, but after, they completely forgot that I was here, and it was great, it was great. And so I came back after 10 days, and immediately I set about translating and editing the video because it had to come out as soon as possible, obviously. I remember I spent one night editing everything. I didn't sleep for the entire night and it came out the next day. I think it was maybe 15 days after Chinese New Year, you know, when you celebrate again. I think right. it, came out. It, it came out then, yeah. And it was such a strong human adventure. It's not the most recent story I'm proud of, but it's the one sometimes I think about again. And actually with them, I came back to Shenzhen maybe three months later to show them the video and the newspaper article and pictures. And I was still in touch with them for a long time. I still think about it. It was the kind of stories I went through all this detour, going to France, going to the US, etc. Like I had done all of that to do 
these kind of stories. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. You were able to edit together so fast. You must have had reams and reams, incredible amount of footage. Did you yeah. come back and kind of have a vision for it already? Yes. Every day I was kind of looking at what I had shot. And so when you think about it a lot, at least that's how I function. I kind of had an idea of what I wanted my video to look like and what were the key moments. So the editing was faster because I didn't have to look at everything I had shot. I already had pre-selected. The, I kind of know the, the flow of the video, but it was more in terms of translations and then the details rather than the flow of the story. I already knew what I wanted to say. Okay. And the final product, how long of a video was um, it? It was seven and then we did a second edit down to five, I think. Yes. So, okay. you know, and, like short doc. And is it still available online? It's on my Vimeo. When I look back at it, <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I cringe because obviously, you know, I have six more years of video experience. So I, I cringe sometimes at my earlier work, but it's still a good story. Cool. I love those sorts of stories where you really get to spend a lot of time exactly. with your sources. Exactly. which Very valuable. When you get into it, you think, you know, that sort of stuff will happen a lot. But in all honesty, it's uh, pretty rare, actually, that uh, you're usually yes. in a kind of a rush. Exactly. I'm sure you know. So then... Um, we could do another story. Is there something you had in mind that you really wanted to share? What do you think? I have another story that I think about. So it's actually another story I did for the Sarchana Morning Post this year. As a freelancer, yes. So it is about a Uyghur restaurant owner here in Istanbul. For people who haven't been following it, Uyghurs are a Muslim ethnic group in the far western Xinjiang province in China, but they've also been subject to persecution. So there are also a lot in diaspora outside, which I'm sure is what you're about to talk about. Correct. So basically, Turkey has a quite important Uyghur community for historical reasons. They share the language. It's the same, comes from the same family for historical reasons. Also, for the past few decades, Uyghur people, when they would go abroad, they would mostly come to Turkey because they share the same history. And so, for example, there is a city in Turkey that's called Kayseri and it has uh, quite an important Uyghur community. Istanbul has Ankara, etc. And so right now what's happening for the Uyghurs in Turkey is very interesting and also sad because everybody is trying to be on the good side of China and Turkey is also trying and so it doesn't really know what to do with its Uyghur community. You had Uyghurs obviously leaving persecution in China but you also had as it was reported before Uyghurs who were coming to Turkey and trying to cross into Syria to fight with the Islamic State and trying to get some fighting skills to hopefully come back to China and try and carry out some attacks, but I think this has never panned out. So China has been asking Turkey to sometimes send back some Uyghurs. Turkey has so far resisted, but it's getting more and more difficult for Uyghurs in Turkey to live. So before, Turkey would give them a long-term residence permit that would ease their mind, that would allow them to settle in Turkey and land back on their feet and restart their life. But right now, Turkey is not giving those long-term residence permits anymore. China is not renewing passport for Uyghurs in Turkey. 
So when their passports are expired, they cannot get a new passport. So they are stuck. So all these things are happening. And so in February, I was told of a Uyghur restaurant owner, successful businessman. He had restaurants in Xinjiang. He sold them later. He has restaurants. I think it was in Kazakhstan. He has a restaurant in Istanbul. He is married with a Han Chinese. He has children who are fluent in Turkish and Chinese. Like he's well-established in Turkey. And also he's married with a Han Chinese. So he has an interesting profile. This man, his name is Kerem Mahmoud. He was arrested late October last year on suspected terrorism charges. Police came storming into his house with no warning whatsoever and took him away and put him in a deportation center outside of Istanbul. And then they put him in another deportation center in another city. And it emerged that probably Probably the Turkish police had had like a warning about him, some sort of, I don't know, intelligence sharing about him. And he was arrested completely arbitrarily, threatened to be sent back to Xinjiang. And he was mm -hmm. released probably three months later, uh, as suddenly as he was taken. And I spoke with his lawyer. He said that it was a massive mystery because he was not a terrorism threat. He was a well-established businessman, married with a Han Chinese. His children were going to Turkish schools. You know, he was not really just at all. I mean, I met the man himself after he was released. Like He was laughing about it. But what I wanted to show in my story is just that Turkey is trying to find a delicate balance between trying to please China, but also trying not to let down the Uyghur minority that is taking refuge in Turkey. But it's just that they got some sources probably linked him with somebody else, with somebody else, etc. And so the, the police showed up at his place to arrest him. And then later on, they realized that they had nothing on him. They were quite embarrassed and they had to release him. It's just that because China is asking Turkey to do certain things, sometimes they get arrested, sometimes they get sent back through a third country so that they say, oh, no, we don't send back directly Uyghurs to China. We deport them to Turkmenistan or something like that. And then Turkmenistan, you know, sends them back to China. It's just that it's very delicate for Turkey now to deal with their Uyghur community. So the story kind of showed how Turkey is figuring it out as it goes along, kind of. And uh, yeah. sometimes there's some collateral damage, I guess, like this uh, guy. Well, exactly. And, and especially right now, Turkey cannot really afford to cross China because China is using and has used in the past, for example, economic pressure to support its position on the Uyghur issue and its fight against extremism. So Turkey, whose economy is not really going great right now, I mean, there is a lot of unemployment, the inflation is at 20%, etc. It cannot really afford to cross a powerful ally such as China. And the Uyghur issue, it's a thorny issue for both countries. It's very delicate. And so was this piece both video and text? or how did it come out? This piece ended up being text and photo because, well, it was difficult to interview the man while he was detained. But the photos, actually, I managed to capture the moment where Kerem, the restaurant owner, reunited with his eight-year-old son. So I was interviewing him back in his restaurant and then the son came bursting through the door of the restaurant. It was the first time he was seeing his father in three months because he had just been released. And so they jumped into each other's arms and I managed to capture that moment. So it's in the photo in the article and I'm very happy. It's a very, very sweet photo. Oh, that's great. You really have a thing for people reuniting, which is sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
So, yeah, the next section is a lightning round, as you know, if you've been listening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have anything you want to say before that, or should we get right into it? Let's get into it. On a normal day, when you're doing work, do you have any sort of routine you go through in the morning of checking the news or anything um, like that? Yeah, I try to check the news before starting any kind of work. I am a news junkie, so I have to check what's happening. I have a certain favorited website that I open on my uh, Google Chrome, and I read uh, selection of them. So I usually read the New York Times and Bloomberg and I would have a look at Le Monde and I would have a look at what's happening in Turkey. And also if I'm preparing a trip to certain countries, I have certain newspapers, websites that I would read. I make sure that I read the news pretty much every morning. And uh, what's a must-read publication that you look at almost every day. Well, I'm sorry, I will say the same. The New York Times for me is a must. I have a subscription to The Economist, which is another must. And I'm thinking, no, that's it. Okay, that's good. Those two. Sure. And then what is a publication you read or listen to or watch a journalistic publication just for fun that's not related to your job? The New Yorker. Yeah, I just love The New Yorker. It's just the range of stories that they do and the quality of the writing is just a pleasure. I take my New Yorker everywhere when I travel or I have the app and I've been a subscriber for... I don't know, at least 10 years. And I remember when we were in China, the I forgot the name of the correspondent, but uh, his stories was just uh, so great. Yeah. No, Evan it's, Osnos, it's just... that guy? Or... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Evan Osnos. I really enjoyed his stories. Quality of the writing of that they, they produce and the depth of the reporting. And they've had time to go deep. And no, it's, it's great. Definitely, definitely. And then what is the best journalistic article, video piece, radio piece, whatever, journalistic work? What's the best piece you consumed recently? I'm a big fan of podcasts, as you know, and I'm just an avid listener from our own correspondent, the BBC from our own correspondent. I think it's it's just great. The radio writing, I would say, and the reporters, they take any kind of anecdote that's happening to them in their daily life or somebody that they have met, and then they can talk about the country. They can talk about a bigger issue happening in the country. I think it's great. And there is a a show I watched last Last month. It's a BBC show, actually. It's fiction. It's called Years and Years. It's a six-part TV series. It is the story of an English family. It's taking place in Manchester. Follows that family for 15 years. The first episode takes place at the end of the year, or 2020. And then it jumps to the next year, and then the next year. And then you have... No, spo- saying, no spoilers, because I'm ah, I'm on episode I, three right now, but go okay. ahead. <laughs> to speak broadly, no spoilers. It shows things that are very much likely to happen. And it's very realistic. It's very worrying sometimes. But it is fiction, but these things may very well happen in the next few years. So I thought it was a must watch. Yeah, years and years. Yeah, that show is great, depressing at times, but also extremely moving. It's it's a little bit like Black Mirror. I thought because some of the things that they would talk about, you think, okay, well, this is already happening or I remember uh, Black Mirror, I was watching this when I was in China. I was thinking, okay, this is already happening in China. And then is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't specifically related to your job? 
I'm trying to read and listen a lot about women issues. It's something I've become extremely interested in the past few years. So, for example, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. It's a lot about that. I try to do stories more about women. Yes, like one of my latest videos was about a Mongolian woman crossing 12,000 kilometers on camel following the Silk Road. Yeah, um, it's it's a topic I'm more and more interested in. Trying to have the more in stories featured prominently have women experts interviewed more. It's something I'm, I'm thinking a lot. Sure. Yeah, that is important. And I need to do better on this podcast. <laughs> Doing better. <laughs> yes. And then is Twitter important to you? Twitter is not really important for me anymore. I hardly tweet and whatever I tweet is something I'm reading and I tweet a powerful quote. I was using Twitter much more before, but now not so much. I think it's people stay in their bubble. It's I think one of your past guests said that it was an chamber and I, I agree. Yeah, it's definitely true. And if you've been listening, I have my conflicted feelings about Twitter, but I can't yes. quite seem to make up my mind as to whether I should care about it or not. Um, and then uh, the next are a series of yes or no questions. So the first one is Glenn Greenwald, yes or no? Well, I haven't really been following what he's been doing recently, but if it's the Glenn Greenwald of 2013, working with Snowden, Poitras, yes. I think he has become more controversial recently, so I'm not too sure. A cautious yes. Vice Media, yes or no? Okay, Vice Media, I'm not a big fan. They have a bad reputation regarding treating their employees and treating the freelance reporters they work with, and that reputation is everywhere. So for me, it's a no. Sure. Yeah, I've heard many of the similar stories. WikiLeaks, yes or no? At the beginning, noble cause, yes, but now, no. And Julian Assange, no. I've almost stopped asking the Julian Assange one just because <laughs> <laughs> literally no one says yes. Nope. <laughs> and then if you've seen it, The Wire season five, yes or no? I've seen it years ago. I would say yes. I think it's not the best season, but yes. Sure. Definitely the journalist that season. I think it was the fictional representation of a Baltimore Sun. Certainly journalists were not in the best light, but I think there is truth to it. Mm -hmm. And then deplatforming, yes or no? Know, which is should certain people with extreme views on, say, climate change or racists be given a platform or should you be refusing to interview and cover these people? Yeah, it's tough because you don't want to censor anyone, but... I don't know. I would say I would say I would say no because it's 2019 and we all know that it's happening and we can feel it. So come on. <laughs> yeah. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? Lindsay Adario. She's an American photojournalist. She's done work in Afghanistan, in Iraq, Libya, many other places. She's covered conflicts. She's covered humanitarian issues. She's covered maternal death. She has an incredible body of work. Not only that, but she's also speaking about how is it to work as a woman covering conflicts and having, for example, trying to have it all. So she's talked about, okay, how it was to be pregnant, but also still wanting to continue working in different dangerous places. Like she is somebody I deeply admire, a dream of meeting her. She speaks about what it is like to be a woman doing a dangerous job. Does her work mostly appear in one place? 
place or does she take photos for uh, all sorts of publications? So she's independent, all sorts of publication, but mostly has been the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, and she has published two books. Okay, cool. I'll uh, have to look her up. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I wish I had gotten rid of that imposter syndrome that I logged around for many years. I wish I had gotten rid of that earlier because I was thinking, okay, I'm not a native English speaker and yet I, I work for English language publications. I come from the middle of nowhere. I'm a woman and yet everybody I see around me are male video journalists. I think for many years I, I struggled a little bit with, and I think it's something that a lot of women journalists struggle with. We struggled with thinking that we deserve to be there. We're obviously as good and we have a place here. It's something I sometimes I was thinking, what am I doing here? But actually, no, I'm a good journalist. I have some access that some men journalists don't. And I equally deserve to be at the place where I'm at because I'm talented and hardworking. Certainly, yeah, I know a lot of young journalists have that feeling. But yeah, you definitely, of anybody, were <laughs> extremely qualified going in, I would say. <laughs> More so than most people. What is one thing that most people don't know about you? That I tend to run marathons in very interesting places. So in 2015, I went to Erbil in Kurdistan to run a marathon. The front line <laughs> with ISIS was 20 kilometers away. And in 2017, Tehran, so in Iran, organized its very first marathon. And it was open to both men and women. So obviously I applied. But a few days before the start of the race the authorities decided that women would only be allowed to run a 10K and not a marathon or a half marathon. So actually, with a group of the local female runners, but also other women runners who had come from all over the world to run this unique race, we gathered around and we decided to run our own secret marathon. We came up with an alternative route and we finished with the 10k route that the authorities had decided for us so we ran the marathon and we managed to get our medal oh wow that's great <laughs> uh, i'm glad that didn't end in everyone being arrested but, yeah i'm uh, glad too <laughs> yeah but uh, i'm an avid uh, runner yeah oh that's interesting uh, yeah i certainly didn't know that what is your favorite film book tv or other media property about journalists and why i think it has been mentioned already i just really love the movie network i thought it was just brilliant dark but brilliant okay yeah i don't think anybody said network maybe it's gotten name checked but you're the ah. first to have chosen it yeah no it's brilliant qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do Something with traveling, obviously. I don't know, I cannot name a job, but I don't know, an adventure of some sort. Like finding some place that nobody has crossed and do it, something like that. You know, like this woman who crossed the English Channel four times a few days ago. I would, <laughs> I would manage to find a way to do that for a living. Like I would get sponsors and I would do adventures like that. Cool. So I would, design, I would design my own job, basically. <laughs> That's a good answer. Then I guess just uh, before we wrap up, I know you're setting off on this big project for World Vision, right? And I, I was just curious if it was going to all go out at the end when you were done or if you would be publishing things along the way or if uh, like if people want to follow your work on this project, how to do that. So for the first few trips that I'm doing with them, I'm gathering content and they will put it on a new platform. Like right now they're doing a test site. So right now I'm just gathering content 
content that they would put together. And also we have a private Instagram account so that we can test content to a certain audience. And I do, you know, Instagram lives, etc. So for now, you cannot see what I'm producing. However, I'm posting sometimes on my own Instagram, obviously, the image of where I am and what I'm working on. But I think if you check back later, maybe in three months on the World Vision website, some announcement will come out and they will, you know, publicize this new platform. And I will oh. as well. So we're looking at like early 2020, early next year, probably? I would say, yeah, I would say early 2020. Okay, cool. And anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, no nothing else. Been It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much for <laughs> taking the time to talk to me. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thanks for having me. That's our show. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Hélène Franchineau, a freelance journalist in Turkey. Follow her on Instagram under the handle Hélène underscore F-R. That's H-E-L-E-N-E underscore F-R. I'll post links to some of the things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the podcast. It helps get the podcast more attention in Apple Podcasts and other apps. You can find us on Twitter at at foreignpod or tweet about us with the hashtag, hashtag foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, November 17th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.